0: William Foxwell Albright, Ph.D., is considered the father of modern archaeology. He died in the 1970s, and today he's remembered as one of the most influential archaeologists of the 20th century. The early days of his career took place during a time when biblical scholars increasingly were questioning the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. And a prime example was an incident recorded in the book of Genesis, chapter 14. And in that chapter, we read about five very obscure kings who take on four other very obscure kings in a military battle. Well, outside of the Bible, there was no historical record of that battle. And almost no record about those kings. And as a result of the lack of that information, many Bible scholars concluded, well, that battle never had taken place. They determined the Bible must be wrong. Albright decided to investigate. So he studied the biblical text, he pored over ancient maps, and he read ancient military history. And based on what he learned, he was able to hypothesize exactly where those armies would have traveled and where they would have camped if that battle would have taken place, if the biblical story was true. And he and an archaeological team went out and they excavated along that route of travel. They excavated in the valley where the the Bible said the battle took place. And guess what? They found concrete evidence that two ancient armies had in fact traveled and camped and fought where the Bible said the battle had taken place. Now that shouldn't surprise us Because when God speaks to us through the scriptures, through his word, he knows what he's talking about. The creator always knows more than his creatures. But sometimes we forget that. And then we wind up second guessing him. And it's amazing how often human beings We read something in the Bible that we haven't independently verified, or that we don't understand, or that we just don't like, and we say, well, that can't possibly be true. But, But think about the implications of that. If we do that, we're claiming that something God says is suspect, based on our ability to confirm it and accept it and agree with it that is an incredibly audacious attitude for finite human beings to display toward the infinite God. The Bible doesn't need our validation. God doesn't need our validation. What we need to do, what every wise person needs to do, is to listen to God and strive to understand what God says to us and then put our trust in Him and live it out. That's what the Apostle John wants to teach us today as we continue to work our way through the book of 1st John. We're going to be in chapter 5 of 1st John verses 1 to 12. And John is going to help us see that one of the marks of a healthy spiritual community is that we believe what God says. And then we act on what we believe. And we do it because we're motivated by love. Let's take a look. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now John has told us before about the importance of Christians loving one another. But now he gives this a new twist by emphasizing that loving each other and loving God are inseparable. He says that we know we love God when we love God's children. And we know that we love God's children when we love God. He's saying they're two sides of the same coin. Those two things exist in harmony, and it's because we are children of a Heavenly Father. We're family. And John likes to to remind us of that throughout this letter. He continually refers to us as children, which reminds us that when we come together like this, we are not just some community organization. We're not meeting like the Rotary Club or the PTA, groups that come together for causes. We come together because we're a family. And John reminds us that we're a family of people who have been spiritually reborn. We are brothers and sisters who share the same Heavenly Father. And John says we should love each other because we are spiritual family members. Now to help us understand this, let's think for a moment about our own families. I hope that there is love in your family. There's love in my family. But here's something that we know. Even families who love each other sometimes squabble. Sometimes they argue. Sometimes they find it difficult to get along. That's natural. But love is what helps us to overcome those things and push through them. And that's because, as John has been telling us consistently for the last few weeks, love is more than a feeling. Love is more than an emotional experience. Love is an attitude and a commitment that shapes our behavior. So when family members disagree, love The love of commitment to one another gets them through their disagreements. Here's an example from my own marriage. Julie and I met during our college years, and we, as they say, fell in love. And in the early days of our courtship, there's an old fashioned word, but <laughs> that's what we called it back then courtship and dating. In those early days, what were we doing? We were caught up in love that was being experienced and expressed at the romantic level, at the emotional level. And the result of that is our relationship wasn't very stable. <laughs> but as we grew closer, we discovered a love beyond emotions. And then one day in our senior year, after we'd been through a very tumultuous up-and-down, on-and-off-again relationship, all of a sudden, it hit me. This was a woman I could share my life with, not just my romance. This was a woman I wanted to grow old with. And as I sat there looking at a woman who I thought was gorgeous... I realized, you know what, when the beauty fades (laughs) and the romance doesn't get us all tingly, (laughs) it won't matter, because I love her, I love her. And so I proposed, she accepted, and we got married. And you know what happens in a marriage ceremony, right? We did what all couples do. At the heart of that ceremony is the exchanging of vows. And what is the vow in marriage? It's a pledge of our commitment to love one another regardless of the ups and downs of our emotional state. And over the years, our goal has been to honor our vow. And that means when we're grumpy, we love each other. When we disagree, we love each other. If we're attracted to someone outside the marriage, we love each other. In all situations we work toward unity and reconciliation and faithfulness so that our life together fulfills our vow, a vow of love. And I mention this because it's important for us to understand that a marriage vow, one way to understand a marriage vow is that it is a pledge of obedience. Because when I honor my vow to Julie, I'm obeying it. And my obedience to that vow, regardless of how I feel in any given moment, is one of the most powerful ways I can demonstrate to my wife that I love her. And I'm so thankful that she responds to me in exactly the same way. You see, a loving relationship has obedience at its core. Obedience to a relational commitment. Not the grudging obedience of a servant, but the loving obedience of a spouse or the loving obedience of a child toward a parent. And what's true in our families is true in God's family. Loving obedience. That's the principle the Apostle John is describing here in our passage. God our Father wants us to embrace that same principle, that principle of loving obedience, and He wants us to apply it to our relationship with Him. And so I don't love God because of a feeling. I'm not in love with God. I love God. Now the fact is, when we come together to worship, sometimes through the music, oh my feelings get stirred up. Sometimes they fill me with I'm filled with joy. Sometimes they make me weep. Sometimes in communion I'm stirred. There's sometimes there's an emotional response. Many times there's not, and it doesn't matter. Because my love for God isn't based on my feelings any more than my love for Julie is based on feelings. It's based on a commitment. In the case of God, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is committed to me. And in response, I'm committed to Him. And that commitment is based on love. And because I love my Heavenly Father, I want to please Him. I want to bring Him joy. And one of the best ways I can please my Heavenly Father is to be obedient to the things He asks me to do. And so then, our obedience to the commands of God is evidence of our love for Him. Now, even as we say that, we need to admit that we might not always like God's commands. Or we might not agree with all of His commands. But our agreement and our understanding and our preferences, they're really beside the point. The point John wants us to grasp is this. Do we love God? And if we love God... Will we demonstrate our obedient love by doing what he asks? I hope we will. And John wants us to realize it's not actually hard to do that because God's commands, as he says, they're not actually burdensome. Now, that might strike us at first as, well, is that, is that really true? <laughs> is that true that God's commands aren't burdensome? They're not when we understand them properly. As John has made abundantly clear in his letter time and time again, and as he's telling us again now, our relationship with God is based on love and it's a unique, unselfish, agape love. A distinctive word in the original Greek to describe God's love. But what it means is that his commands to us always are in our best interest whether we understand that or not. Knowing that, Knowing that God's commandments are given to us in love for our good, all oh, that should make it so much easier for us to practice loving obedience and do what he asks. Okay, God, you've asked me to do this thing. I don't fully understand it, but I know you love me. I know it's for my good. God, I know you've asked me to avoid that particular behavior. I don't understand it. I'm kind of interested in that ungodly behavior, but I know it's for my best. I don't do it, so I'm going to just trust you, and I'm going to do what you ask. His commands are a whole lot easier to follow when we understand that they're not burdensome because they're given in love. And so we believe what God says because of his lavish love for us. And then we respond to what he says with loving obedience because that's how children respond to a loving father. Now one of the challenges toward loving obedience is that there exists an enemy, a spiritual enemy. There's an enemy of our souls called Satan and he always wants to undermine the good things that God wants to do in our lives. And because Satan is sneaky and he's deceptive, he tries to convince us that obedience is hard and that we pay a price for obedience. He tries to convince us that obedience to commands is costly. Am I doing something wrong there? Okay. (laughs) Getting some some funny sounds there. Satan wants to convince you and me that obedience to God is costly, but it's a lie, because Satan's a liar. And when we respond to God with loving obedience, guess what, we don't pay a price. John says we experience victory. The victory of overcoming the lure of worldly things. The victory of freedom over sin and temptation. The victory of walking close with God each and every day and experiencing the joy of what it means to be children of the Heavenly Father. And so love, God's love for us, our love for Him, leads naturally to a life of victorious, loving obedience. And that's what happens when we believe what God says. And that's the first thing that John wants us to grasp here. But then he moves on to what's even better news, the best news of all, life doesn't end here. When we believe what God says and follow Him with loving obedience, Then we have the sure and certain promise of the life to come. Let's continue on in our passage. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, the first part of this section is a little confusing at first glance. When John talks about the water and the blood and the spirit, what's he saying? If we just dive into this for a minute and understand what those three things represent, then I think we can figure out what John wants us to grasp. The first is water. Water refers to Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was immersed in the Jordan River, the Heavenly Father audibly recognized Jesus as His Son... And that's the moment that launched Jesus' public ministry. There was a crowd there watching Jesus get baptized, and guess what? They heard the Father speak. Which means then, that moment of endorsement by God the Father on His Son was a moment of public testimony. Testimony. And then in addition, the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus at that moment to anoint him and to empower him for the ministry that was starting. And the people in the crowd saw that, so it was a moment of public testimony. Blood refers to the cross where Jesus died for our sins. That's the other end of his ministry. Water and blood, they're the bookends. Of Jesus' earthly ministry. And as we know, when Jesus was crucified, lots of people watched him die. It was a moment of public testimony. After his death, the Holy Spirit raised him from the grave. There were people who saw that empty tomb, and there were hundreds of people who had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. So again, there was profound public testimony to who this Jesus is. John is using these symbols, water, blood, spirit, to counter a lie that was being spread about Jesus at that time. You see, there were people who claimed that Jesus came by water only, not by blood or by the Spirit. They were saying things like, well, yes, Jesus was a good and godly man. And yes, he was blessed by God when he got baptized, but he was just a man. He wasn't the Son of God. And therefore, his death on the cross accomplished nothing. So we can live a good life if we follow Jesus' advice, but he can't rescue us from our sins. John is writing against that teaching. And what he's saying to his readers is this. Who are you going to believe? Will you believe what God says about himself and his son and the spirit? Will you believe the public testimony about Jesus given to us by the creator of heaven and earth? Will you believe the public testimony seen and heard by all the people at that time and recorded, uh, recorded in the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament? Will you believe all that from God will you believe the flawed testimony of an imperfect human being? When it boils down to the testimony of man versus the testimony of God, who are we going to trust? And it is amazing to me that so many people choose to ignore the testimony of God. I hope we understand that's not a wise course of action. Because if we do that, we're saying we're smarter than God. We're saying that we know more than God does. And as I mentioned earlier, that kind of attitude is incredibly arrogant for created beings to say about their creator. And yet pride is the foundational sin of humanity. We always think we're better than we are and particularly in relationship to God, we need to keep our arrogance in check and live with some humility. And here's one way I do that. Every time I think I have it all together, every time I think I have the right to question God, every time I think I'm so smart, I remember the lesson of the buzzard. (laughs) Here's the lesson of the buzzard. If you place a buzzard in a pen, eight feet square... By six feet high, and leave the top of that pen entirely open, the buzzard will remain trapped. Despite the fact that he can look up and there's a way of escape right over his head, he won't escape. In fact, he won't be able to escape. That's because a buzzard flies by getting a running start. He needs a runway about 10 to 12 feet long to get some momentum and then he takes off and he's not going to have that runway in an 8 foot square pen. He doesn't know any other way to fly. So for him there's only one right way to approach the problem and that one right way that he knows won't result in freedom. So he will remain trapped by his limited ability and limited knowledge and limited experience. So while, yes, the buzzard knows a lot about flight, but he doesn't know everything. And in the same way, God has blessed us with intellect and we can reason and think. But we don't know everything. And so we need to humbly accept our human limitations. And we need to refuse to trust our souls to the testimony of human beings who make false claims about Jesus. Instead, let's put our trust in the testimony of the God who loves us, who loves us unconditionally, and who showers us with his agape, unselfish love. He's the one we need to believe when it comes to Jesus. And he says Jesus came to rescue us from our sins and to give us new life as children of God. We can believe that. It's true. But there's more to come, John wants us to know, because Jesus didn't come to simply rescue us for this life, he came to rescue us for eternity. A huge part of the message of the kingdom of God is that this life is not all there is. Eternity awaits. Eternal life. That's not just some sweet-sounding churchy phrase. It's actually an essential component of a healthy view of life. You see, if we believe this life is all there is, Then we easily can feel hopeless and without purpose. I've done scores of funerals for families who had no faith and who believed that death was final, there was nothing more. And the sense of despair such people feel when a loved one dies oh, it's heartbreaking. What's fascinating is that these hopeless people don't realize how hopeless they are because they don't know any other way of looking at life. You see, eternity usually has no significant meaning for us until we get connected to God. I've experienced that in my own life. I remember in the years before I became a Christian... Some of my believing friends tried to entice me to become a Christian by promoting this message of eternity. Don't you want to live forever, Bruce? (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, no, not really. (laughs) I I didn't get it. Made no sense to me. Eternal life had no value for me. Because I had no perspective by which to understand what eternity meant. And that's because I would not yet reached a point where I trusted and believed God. And it's only when we embrace God's testimony about himself and begin to live by faith that eternity begins to make sense. And it's only when, when we believe what God says about eternity that it actually adds value to our lives today. And oh, does it add value to life today. Brothers and sisters, everything changes when we know that death simply is a transition point from this life to the next. When we realize we will spend eternity with the God who loves us, that does transform our perspective. And so because of the promise of life after death, I can live today with a future hope. I can keep the problems and issues and challenges of today in proper perspective. And I can look forward to a world where there is no sin. A world where there is no injustice. A world where things like envy and bitterness and hatred and anxiety and greed and pride and frustration all are gone. A world where there is no more sorrow, no more pain. A world where we, the children of God, We'll live with permanent, ongoing, fulfilling joy. Because all of the distractions and destructions of this world will go away. We will live together in a world that is full of God's light and God's love. Each and every day. What an incredible thing to look forward to. Oh, that fills me with hope. That makes me want to keep pressing on. And I hope it does for you as well. And this hope, this promise of eternity, it belongs to everyone who believes God's testimony about Jesus and then responds in faith to what God says. And if, you're, if you've never started the journey of faith, if you're unsure how to properly respond to God and begin the journey of faith, let me make it clear what God's testimony is. God's promise of eternity is extended to us when we acknowledge our sinful condition. And we repent. And we ask God to forgive us. We take our first step of faith and we're baptized into Christ. And we receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit who lives within us. And as we've seen here in in John's letter, we are reborn. We are reborn as children of the Heavenly Father. A Father who says, I'm promising you the gift of eternal life. If you've never started down the road of faith, and you want to become a child of God, I'd love to invite you to talk to me after the service today, or you can write a note on the connection card that's in the bulletin. You can put it in the box at the back of the auditorium, and we'll get back to you. We would love to help you take your very first step of faith. Because as John says in the final part of this passage, if you have the Son, you have life today, and forever. That is God's promise. And all of this, it all boils down to one key question. Do we believe what God says? Years ago I encountered the writings of a man named Albert Henry Ross. And he was an author who wrote under the pen name of Frank Morrison. And he had doubts about the resurrection of Jesus and he wanted to disprove it. His goal was to show that that resurrection from the dead was impossible and in particular that the story of Jesus' empty tomb was a myth. In other words, like so many other people, Ross decided that he had the right to judge God. (laughs) And that he had the authority to evaluate the truth of what God had said in his word. So he dove into his research. He examined all the evidence available in the Bible. He examined other historical documents. And ultimately he realized that his presuppositions were wrong. He realized that people who claimed the resurrection was a hoax were wrong. He realized that what God had said in the Bible about the resurrection was true. Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And as a result, when his research was finished, Albert Henry Ross, a.k.a. Frank Morrison, made the choice to believe what God said. He put his trust in the Heavenly Father, he became a follower of Jesus, and he wrote a book about his conclusions. Some of you know it, it's called Who Moved the Stone. Who of the Stone by Frank Morrison. When I went off to college, I was a very new Christian and I encountered a lot of academic thinking that challenged my faith. And as a result, I went through some seasons of doubt. I went through some seasons where, because of what academics said, the testimony of man, I wasn't sure that I could trust what God said. And I'm so thankful that I encountered Morrison's powerful little book, Who Moved the Stone? Because it reminded me that the testimony of human beings never can overcome the testimony of God. When God speaks to us through His Word, we can trust it. What He says is right. He knows best. And that, of course, is the exact point that the Apostle John wants us to grasp. Who do we believe? A sticky community of faith, a community of believers who want to stick to God and who want to stick to each other will always make the choice to believe what God says. And when we do, And we then respond to God with loving obedience. The result is a victorious life of faith and to live each day with the hope of eternity. That's what God says He wants for us. Do we believe Him? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these very wise words from the Apostle John, and we're so grateful for what he's teaching us about you and the nature of your love for us. Please help us, Father, to love you so much that our greatest desire is to trust you and to trust that you know what you're talking about. As we encounter your truth in the Scriptures, help us to believe what you say and then respond with obedience. The loving obedience of children toward our amazing, loving Heavenly Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.